Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you are hearing this message. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's edition of Bible Bites, episode 273. As we continue reading through the scriptures this year, God's Holy Word, my reading for today is found in the book of Zechariah, and we're reading in chapters 8 through 14. And we will conclude the book of Zechariah today. He's the 11th of the 12 minor prophets in what the Jews may refer to as the book of the 12. And remember, they are minor only because of the amount of space that they take up in the Bible in terms of their writing being small, um, you know, small in, in its depth. But the depth of their message is still very powerful. So it has nothing to do with them not being as important. Their message is just as important and concurs with the other prophets. It's amazing how much of the scriptures concur together. And obviously, it was written by one author. The Holy Spirit wrote the whole book. He just moved upon several different people to do it. So Zechariah was one of those. So let's pick up in Zechariah chapter 8. In verses 1 through 6, notice that this is an encouraging word. As a matter of fact, the whole of chapter 8 is really an encouragement. If you'll remember, these are the returning captives. These are the ones that came from the Babylonian captivity and have now returned to the land and are involved in rebuilding in the land. And Zechariah and Haggai worked together to encourage them to start back up the rebuilding of the temple, the project that they had neglected and had let go astray. And so Zechariah and Haggai both are encouraging the people in the work. They didn't just come and show up and say, you need to get back to work and then take off. No, they were right there with them. Ezra records that for us in Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, and in Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. So these, this message here is part of the encouraging word that the Lord gave to them. And it speaks of not just this time that they're in right now, but actually even further in the future to the coming days of the Messianic kingdom especially verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. And so that points us to the coming of Jesus, partially fulfilled in his first coming and in its fullness in the millennial kingdom. So there's a good bit in this chapter, actually, verse 20 through 23 gives us a good bit more of the details about the millennial kingdom. And then in verse 11 through uh, 15, he speaks of the return that he will make to them in terms of blessing them because they've now come back. They have been disciplined for their wrong and all of that. And these are the returning remnant of the Jews that are faithful to go back to the land and start the rebuilding process. And so God is sending them words of encouragement that will strengthen them and strengthen their heart.
Chapter 9 is another oracle that God gave to Zechariah. And, of course, we're mostly familiar with verse 9 of this chapter, which I do want to read. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we know that that was utterly fulfilled when Jesus came in his first coming, and we call it the triumphal entry. When he rode on the donkey, he came down the descent of the Mount of Olives and rode into Jerusalem. And remember, the people were throwing their coats and their palm branches and all of those things down, welcoming him and giving to him the messianic cry from Psalm 118, which the Pharisees recognized right away. And that's why they got so upset and said, oh, you need to close, tell them to shut up. They don't need to be crying that to you because they were rejecting him as king, but the people were receiving him as king. And so this scripture was fulfilled in Jesus' triumphal entry ride. Then verse 10 of that same chapter actually jumps way forward into his second coming in the millennial kingdom because he will not be the king at that time riding on a donkey. He'll be on his white horse riding in victory, but he is the exact same king. And this verse, verse 10, tying with verse 9, tells us that. So it's one king and two comings. And we see that even here in Zechariah's book in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Then <clears throat> I wanted to point this out in verse 11 and 12. Notice this. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant... I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And then he goes on and he gives them hope-filled words. It just shows us the importance of the blood of the covenant. The blood of the new covenant was Jesus' blood that was shed on Calvary. And it matters that we are in covenant with God. And being in covenant with God causes him to remember his covenant promises and bless us. Oh, praise be to the Lord. Chapter 10 is all about the restoration and redemption of Israel and what God is going to do. This is encouraging words to them as well. Chapter 11, we see an object lesson. It's time for them to, to see some object lessons and use some visual aids. And so there's two staffs. And one is named Beauty, one is named Bonds. And so we read more about them here. Now, verses 12 and 13, <clears throat> we know, and it is attested to us in the New Testament, that these scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. Verses <clears throat> 12 and 13 says this, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. 
So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. This was fulfilled through the betrayal of Jesus Christ by Judas Iscariot. It was signified here by breaking that first staff. This was the breaking of that um, former covenant because Jesus was ushering in the new covenant, which would be um, ratified and cut through the cross following his betrayal. Note, too, that the 30 pieces of silver here was, according to Exodus 21, 32, the exact redemption price that would be required for a female slave. It's interesting when you understand that requirement in the Torah to see that Jesus was bought. He was, he was, he, the price for him, 30 pieces of silver, was the price that was buying us as his bride from the slave market of sin as he is our redeemer. He made us his own and he set us free from the slave market of sin for the same price that a female slave was redeemed. And that female slave is his bride who has now become his bond slave because we love him so much. We say, Lord, we don't want to go anywhere else. And you can read more about the bond slave, I believe, in Exodus in the first part of that same chapter. In chapter 11, in verse 12 and 13 also, to conclude that particular passage and the, the fulfillment of that, we also saw how, in fact, Judas Iscariot did take the money back and did throw it down in the temple, and then it was used to literally buy the potter's field, now called the field of blood. And you can read more about that in Matthew chapter 26 and 27 in the book of Acts chapter 1 also. In verse 15 through 17, we read about a, a foolish or an idle shepherd, a worthless shepherd. The New King James calls him an idle shepherd, I-D-O-L. And so we believe very strongly that this idle shepherd represents the Antichrist. I would refer you also to Jeremiah 49, verse 19 as well. He was uh, filled with wickedness. He was idle. He was uh, not caring for the people as he should have been. He was very wicked and idolatrous. And note also his woundedness that is spoken of in verse 17 reminds us of what Revelation speaks about, about the woundedness of the beast. In chapter 12 of Zechariah, I want to read verse 1 to you just because I want to point out the beauty of what it tells us about this, our Lord. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. That is our great God. And Zechariah is praising him and, and speaking of his high attributes with esteem. Verses 2 through 9 give us details 
about the second coming of Jesus that we find um, mentioned in Revelation chapter 19. This also gives us details about that final battle that occurs right before Jesus establishes his millennial reign. And then in verse 10 through 14, oh, this beautiful passage. I'm going to read a portion of it. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for me as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the morning at Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of Shammai by, by itself and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. This is telling us that when Jesus comes back, it will fulfill the utter and the ultimate day of atonement for the Jewish people. These are the Jewish people that will be mourning for him as for an only son. They will look on him. They will look upon him like they had to look upon the serpent on the pole. Jesus even referred to that in John chapter 3. They will look on him in faith, believing in him. They will recognize and repent of their sins. And that is the beautiful promise that we are all looking to see come to pass Praise be to God, because all Israel will be saved in that day. We also can read more about this in Jeremiah 6, 26. And I love the passage in 2 Corinthians 7 and 10, 7 and verse 10, where it speaks about godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And that is what the Jewish people will have in that day when all Israel is saved. Praise God. Chapter 13 is prophetic of Revelation chapter 19, Isaiah 63, and other passages. Specifically, this first verse, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. He's going to wash away their sins with that fountain of his own blood. And the Jews will recognize and receive the fountain of Jesus' blood that was shed for them, and they are saved. That same day that we just read about in the end of chapter 12. Hallelujah. Verses 6 and 7 speaks also about Jesus' betrayal and his death. And I want to direct you to Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, in regard to the, that passage which it said in Matthew was fulfilled there at Jesus' betrayal leading up to his death. <clears throat> Chapter 14 gives us much more detail about that coming day when the Lord returns and what happens. We see that 
there's a final battle and campaign against the Lord. We see that Jesus rides in on the white horse, which we're told in Revelation 19.11. That's spoken of here in verse 3. He fights his enemies with his word. His feet stand on the Mount of Olives and it splits, providing a valley that his enemies try to flee through to get away from him. He comes back with the saints being with him. We're told that in verse 5 here. Yes, in verse 5 here, and we see that also in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 15, and in the book of Jude chapter 1, verse 14, where Enoch had prophesied, and he saw that way back in the days of the book of Genesis. We see that there's going to be certain cosmic changes. We read that here in verse 6 and 7, and then in other places it speaks of that as well. We also see Ezekiel's prophesied river of life from Ezekiel chapter 47 that will come from the throne of Jesus out of Jerusalem. Here, verse 8 speaks about that. It tells us it's going to go, come from Jerusalem. It's going to, half of it's going to go toward the Eastern Sea, which is the Dead Sea because it's going to the Jordan River and then down. And then half of them will go toward the Western Sea or the Mediterranean Sea. It's going to go in both directions all through the year. We see in verse 9 more information about Jesus' millennial reign. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be. The Lord is one in his name, one. Jesus will rule as king in that day. Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem will be raised up. And even the very landscape around it suffering some change or um, being changed in some ways. In verse 10, it tells us that. And then in verse 11, it speaks of the safety of people dwelling there. They won't have to fear. There'll be no war. There'll be um, no more things that would cause them any fear or fright or terror. Verse 12 and 13 of chapter 14 tell us specifically more about the fate of the Lord's enemies and even their animals. We see here what will happen to them. Some believe that this could be a result of some type of nuclear thing, but I also want to just point out it could be the mere fact that the Lord himself speaks the word, destroy to them, and their bodies just dissolve right in, in front of them because his word is the power that will bring these things to pass. Whether he chooses to use some other man-made thing or not, that's up to him. But his word alone can do exactly what this says that will happen to them. We see in verse 16 through 19 that everyone in that day will be expected and demanded to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, honoring the Lord and recognizing his kingship in that time. If they do not come, their punishment will be that they will have no rain on them during that time period. And then in verse 20, he ends with this. I want to read this. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses, 
The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there will, shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts or anyone that is, is uh, worshiping another god and doesn't honor him. So holiness to the Lord is restored in that day. Zechariah not only came on the scene to encourage them about rebuilding the temple and be a strength and a hope and an encouragement to them in that day, but Zechariah also gives us great details <clears throat> about the first and second coming of Jesus. And those that were fulfilled in the first are identified for us in the New Testament and proven to us and attested by the New Testament writers. And the others we know to be still yet to come, but they are sure and certain and they will come. That coming day when Jesus will rule is ahead for us and we can't wait. To, for that time period to come. May God bless you today. I hope these are a blessing to you. I hope you can join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you today in Jesus' name.